and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.catherineplano.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today we have Nicole Alexander who was born and raised on the Blacksaw Plains of New South Wales, Australia on her family property located near the Queensland border where she grew up with the sky for a ceiling. Nicole's great-grandfather selected the holding in 1893. A simple timber hut was quickly pegged out and built where men spent their days working on the property. In that first year, her great-grandfather received a copy of Alexander Dumas' book, The Count of Monte Cristo. The novel arrived in a saddlebag on the back of a pack horse wrapped in brown paper and twine. And you can only imagine her great-grandfather's excitement when he unwrapped that parcel. Reading his book by a flickering candle, seating beneath a fat, lazy moon and the bush stretching out around him in an unending silence. Nicole heard these stories and many more as a child and from an early age loved Australian history. Nicole is the best-selling author of seven Australian fiction novels and her latest book released in July 2017, An Uncommon Woman. Nicole has been featured on Channel 10, ABC Radio, Time Magazine, Elle Magazine and lots more. Now it's time to sit back, relax and tune into this inspirational woman. Enjoy. So welcome to I Am Woman Project. Today we have Nicole Alexander all the way from Moree. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Catherine. So for our listeners, we were just having a bit of a chat. Uh, It's great to finally get Nicole on the show because um, she's here today to tell us all about her new book. So let's get started for our listeners to unpack Nicole Alexander. What's your story? Well, Catherine, um, I live in Moree. Previous to that, I was on our family property for about 23 years. So our family's been on the land northwest of Moree since 1893. My great-grandfather's buried on one of our properties. We downsized about 18 months ago um, for my parents' retirement, and sadly my father passed uh, away a couple of months ago. And apart from the farming side of things, I'm also a novelist. So I've just written my eighth novel with Penguin Random House, and it's out this month in July, and it's called An Uncommon Woman. And my background before farming and writing was marketing, both in Australia and in Singapore. So I've had a bit of a sort of divergent, eclectic career, I guess. I've gone from corporate to agriculture and publishing as well. So that's that's me, basically. 
Wow. So talk us through a, an uncommon woman. An uncommon woman set in 1929 in the Western Downs region of Queensland. And I actually got the idea because when I started doing some research, wondering where I was actually going to set the next book, I came across this article in the Tasmanian Examiner, of all places, a newspaper, and the headline actually said, Station Sold to Woman. And I thought, what? The fact that a woman buys a property in Queensland that equates to a headline in an island state that's so far away from the dusty interior of Australia, obviously. I thought that's just quite amazing. So I delved a little further and actually found that um, the lady in question was married and she was living in that area of Western Queensland and she actually did buy a property and her, her name was used to purchase that property. Now, whether or not um, she actually bought it herself or her name was used as a holding name, which was done in that, that day and age and is still done um, today, depending on how your business is structured in rural Australia. It's basically so you can accumulate more land under different holding names. That intrigued me as well. I haven't been able to find out much about her apart from um, a census document from the mid-1930s that actually said that she was living on the property that she'd purchased and that her occupation was home duties. But, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that she wasn't running the property because women were sort of labelled and, and sort of put in that category anyway in that day and age. If you're a female, it was home duties most of the time. So that's where the idea for the novel came from. And from there I decided to place my lead character, 1929, just before the stock market crash. And, of course, Australia was going from a recession to the Depression just after the Great War. So there were... There was a lot of, you know, restructuring in Australia going on as well. But it was also the time of the great pastoralists. So we had all these men um, who were really carving up a lot of inland Australia. So, you know, people such as Sir Sidney Kidman and, of course, um, Gina Reinhardt has recently bought out that property, hundreds of thousands of acres. So I thought it was very relevant to also set a story about a woman trying to buy land in 1929 when I look at what's going on today in agriculture and women are, you know, starting to be a little bit more at the forefront of agriculture as well. I love the title, An Uncommon Woman. How long did it take you to come up with that one? Well, you know, I couldn't actually come up with a title. Um, usually I'm, I'm like, I sort of have the title and I'm able to sort of go with it and that becomes, you know, my reference point for the writing of this book but I just couldn't think of one so my wonderful publisher came up with it she had about four or five suggestions and I thought yeah I like that okay we'll go with that it works mm, that's great so is is that how you get your inspiration for writing because obviously eight books that's fantastic uh, so you seek external is that your way of finding inspiration for writing well, I actually use both. So because our family's, um, well, I should say a number of things, because our family's been on the land for so long, we do have quite a lot of family archives. So we've got, you know, old diaries and paddock books and we've got rain charts that go back and sort of, you know, to the early 1900s. So when I start thinking about a, a novel, um, I have a think about the era that I want to set it in and then I do a bit of general research. Um, I read both fiction fiction and non-fiction, just around the period. But then from there, I tend to sort of have a look at my own family's archives and then generally have, um, I don't know, I guess you'd have to say a general sort of chat about to myself about what could have been happening at the time. Um, 
so yeah, it is very, very much a, a combination of things. I also listen to the stories that have been passed down through the family, and even though that's only anecdotal material, that can really give you a great, you know, rounded sense of what was happening in any given period. Of course, as long as it's relatable to the period that I'm writing about. And that's when all the good juicy stories come out. Is uh, it's when they have actually been passed down the family tree. You know, sitting, uh, you know, around a fire, sharing stories, and uh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, I think it sort of it makes it you know so much more authentic, doesn't it? And it's fun too. I mean, that's the great thing. I mean, storytelling should be fun. It should be interesting. It should be entertaining, regardless of whether it's you and I chatting about our respective stories or the written word. Mm. And do you have a, a process on how you go about it? Like there's some some writers, they have a storyboard, they use the writing spine. There's different uh, methodologies, I guess, that they apply. Is there one that you sort of lean towards? Well, I'm probably what's known as a pantser in that I sort of, you know, do it by the seat of my pants. I'm not a plotter. So I might have a, you know, a sort of rough idea to start off with and I'll write a couple of, of chapters. But then I like to see how the characters evolve if I have something totally plotted out and a character leads me in another direction and I'm thinking, yes, that works, that's great, I don't want to be so constricted by what I've already plotted out that that sort of doesn't allow me to change the story. So I like the freedom and the flexibility. And the other thing is as well, um, I'm on, I have been on a book-a-year contract with Random House for the last five, oh, eight years, I should say, and because of that as well, I guess I work better for the adrenaline aspect. So if I'm on a book year contract and I'm spending a lot of time plotting, one would think that would make it a little bit easier for me, but it just works better for me if I have that freedom to make the decisions as I go along. Mm. And when you're actually, when you're saying you're trying on these characters and uh, do you actually, uh, you know, some, for example, some people when they're writing about characters, they actually see what it would be like to live in their shoes and, and see what they see and, and hear what they hear and feel what they feel and really take the journey on um, and as, as if it was them themselves to write about it. Is that something that you do? Absolutely, and I think you have to do that um, to make the work realistic and engaging. And certainly when I'm writing a book, I do I do a lot of background work on my characters, so it's sort of my own little version, I guess, of CSI profiling. So I work, have an idea of who their parents were, who their grandparents were, where they might have lived in the past, the socioeconomic conditions, you know, the things that mould people, what their education may have been like, and that then reflects how they talk, how they dress, what situation situation you'll find them in, what situation they'll be comfortable in, how they relate to other people. So there's a whole heap of things that sort of funnel down from this overall umbrella that goes into forming your character. And then I do literally place my feet in um, that character's shoes. And you need to do that because as you, you being the reader, Catherine, you have to be able to see what I'm seeing as the character. Mm. So you have to, exactly what you just said, you have to smell you have to see it, you have to sense it, you have to be fully immersed in the story so that you're there. So there's no, you know, it's very hard you know, to be distracted, I guess, is what I'm getting at, yeah, from the story. And, and how easy or difficult is it to go from one character to another? So if you have multi-characters within your uh, story, how does that play out? Uh, do you just focus on one character at a time or can you switch from one to the other? 
Um, I usually switch from one to the other because I like, you know, the, I guess the thing is about writing a novel and, and, you know, any number of characters are interacting and they're engaging all the time. So I think you have to do that from the very, you know, once the characters meet up in the narrative, you have to start doing that, I find anyway, early. And there's two reasons. One, because of that character interaction adds to the story and we start to see very quickly, you know, likes and dislikes, allegiances, which way each character, you know, wants to go, um, what their what their wish list is, as wish, wish list is as far as um, what they want to achieve in life and how that's going to affect the other character. And the other thing is, is once again, from the reader's point of view, the sooner you introduce those characters and you have them engaging and you have that conflict, which is so vital to a storyline, um, the quicker the reader becomes totally engaged. And with your characters, are there some aspects of it that's quite relevant to your own characteristics? Um, well, I guess I tend to write about more, I suppose, pioneering Australian women. I use that term loosely, but usually they're quite strong, feisty women. And I guess to a certain extent, they really find themselves um, restricted by their gender and society and obviously the times in which they live and, and they want to break break free of that. So it is quite a defining um, characteristic, I, I suppose, within all of my novels. And do I base that on myself? No, I don't. But I like to think that I'm a strong, independent woman um, and I like to portray strong female protagonists in my work because I think that's very important that women have a strong voice in fiction. And mm. so that's what I, I hopefully I, I achieve. I absolutely agree. So, Nicole, what's uh, that inner driver that makes you do what you do with the writing aspect? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I love writing and I love storytelling and um, I love the written word and that's something for me that's been um, sort of, you know, I've, I've had it from a very early age and I'm writing about Australia's pastoral history, which isn't something that people write about a lot. People tend to sort of go for the Western society take on Australia when they talk about Australian history like convicts and the colonials, etc. And I have written about that in the past and it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a time period that's rich in history. But there's a lot more to Australian history than that and it's beyond our coastal lines and I guess I get a lot of joy of writing about that and, and of course, it feeds into my other interest and love which is having been brought up in a grazing family. I'm fourth generation. So I'm able to use my love of the land and incorporate that into some of my stories as well. So I'm, I'm blessed, I guess, from that point of view. Mm, I love it. And, Nicole, would you have done anything uh, differently with the benefits of hindsight? Yes, most definitely because I, as I said in, my, said in the intro, I've got a background sort of in corporate marketing. Um, I came back home about 23 years ago with the intention of staying for 12 months to have a sabbatical and I've been in the family business as business manager ever since. And I guess I have learnt more here than I ever could have learnt um, restricted to a marketing role, even though they're in, they're in corporate positions. So if I had my chance over, I probably would have skipped the corporate side of things and come straight back to the family business. But having said that, um, I think you need to go away to get a fresh perspective and to learn different things when it comes to returning to a family business and working with and for family because you have to learn the ability to um, 
structure your life, structure your time in a business sense and, you know, take advice and also take instruction and orders as well to a certain extent. And I may not have been so adept at that had I not had that corporate sort of, you know, backgrounding. So I'm not too sure I'm, I'm half and half. I have learnt far more um, on the business side of things from being in the rural business than I ever did in the corporate world, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's quite common. Quite often the uh, women of inspiration we've had on the show say the same thing, that they always have had the greatest lessons once they left their corporate environment because then they were, I guess, um, with they had to back themselves in some way, shape or form. And then stuff was coming out because when you're there, normally in a corporation, for example, you might have a marketing department, a sales department who are supporting you. And then all of a sudden, when you decide to go out on your own or a family business, then you've got to take care of business. You've got to take care of all that yourself. And so all of this stuff comes up, you know, self-worth and and so forth. So it's one of those things that you hear quite often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that because, yes, you suddenly you're sort of surrounded by everything. You're multitasking every element of a business not just one um i think that's that's probably the, the main thing as you just alluded to and you know it's a positive learning curve we should be learning all our lives so it's it's a great thing when you do something different that's hard that's confronting because uh, of course it's that old catch cry isn't it anything that's worthwhile it's going to be hard anyway so mm-hmm. so true so during your uh, journey what was the greatest lesson that you learned along the way um i think that I used to get really concerned when something went wrong. So it is that ability to, I suppose, roll with the ups and downs to a certain extent. Um, and what I said earlier, it, it's, you know, it does create a lot of time and effort to create anything worthwhile. So regardless of what business you're in, it would be fluidity. You've mm. got to be able to roll with everything and, and accept it, try and solve the problem and then move on and not take any you know not take things too personally which I think women tend to do a little bit as well um, and I think it's important to realize that we're you know we are learning and everything we learn is another achievement and it's moving forwards and, and remembering that you have you're going to navigate a lot of obstacles along the way oh, it's so true I mean we all I mean I think sometimes obstacles show us the way forward I don't look at them as a way to stop us. I think it's it's uh, it's that more that reflection time where you look at it and go, okay, how do I get through this, over this, or around this? So, and what I love to talk about too is pain points. I love uh, we all have pain points, and every business and every entrepreneur and every every individual has a pain point. What would be one of your biggest pain points that you go you come through on a day to day basis? Well, I guess because I have um, sort of two jobs so to speak writing and agriculture it would be time which would apply to a lot of people but trying to actually manage those dual professions um time is something that you know and i guess time management only gets me so far because i can have my diary and and you know note everything down the day before or the weekend before and have my notes so i hopefully sleep the night before a big day but invariably something gets in the way so I've just found that I have to say to myself, there are some things that you just can't fit in. Um, at the beginning of my writing career, I made the decision, okay, I want to write and I want to be involved in the family business. So there's going to be a period of time where I'm not going to be able to go out and have, you know, do the social things that I would have liked to, to have done. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to have a full weekend off. Um, I might sometimes not be able to have a weekend off. 
with what I'm doing. But that's a choice I made and that wouldn't make, you know, it wouldn't work for a lot of people. Things are a little bit easier now because I guess over the last sort of few years I've been able to adjust and realise how much I can do and how much I can't do. Everyone is very different. I tend to work well under pressure anyway. Um, so I'm fortunate in, in that regard. But, you know, time management is a major thing for me. And I guess the other side of it is from the writing point of view is commitment. I am an outdoors person. So actually physically putting my, you know, little backside in the chair and sitting down to write is something that I really have to say to myself, right, you've got to do, you know, 5,000 words this week in coal over a seven-day period and you're also going beyond property as well. So how are you going to fit it in? The only way you're going to fit it in is put your backside in the chair. Mm. So you don't lock yourself down for two or three months like some writers would say, okay, I'm just going to disappear from the planet and just in totally focus on writing. You do it sort of small chunks at a time. I do. So once I know what I'm going to write about for each book, I just say to myself, right, I'm starting this month. I've got to start, you know, 5,000 words a week where possible um, to try and, you know, keep up to speed with the manuscript deadline. I'd sort of, you know, if I if someone said to me, you've got, here's three months, here's a place to go and start and write Nicole, I'd probably spend half the time outside anyway. So I'd be wasting my time. So I'm, I think I'm sort of more suited to this, dual role of half the time writing and half the time out in the bush to a certain extent because it just wouldn't work for me sitting in front of a laptop for three months. Mm, so it sounds like you've got a very uh, uh, successful work-life integration. Well, I don't know. I'm quite tired this morning, Catherine. I don't know whether it's working or not. Yeah, well, that's probably because yesterday you got bogged down maybe. I think that, that sometimes that could be quite stressful. It is, yes. Well, we were out. I was out on the property and we were moving some cattle and I was just driving around in the truck, shutting gates as you do, and um, we just had this short, sharp shower that came over, and yeah, and suddenly I was like, "Oh, I'm stuck." Anyway, I managed to get myself out. Mm, good, good. So the other question I have for you, uh, Nicole, is what do you think is the number one reason that individuals fail to succeed in business? Um, I think, from a business point of view, is that. Well, I'd like to, well, I'd like to think that from a business point of view is that you have to have, you know, you have to have a, a good cash flow and you have to manage the cash flow. So you have to watch your ingoings and your outgoings every month and match that against your budget. Um, I think people sort of, you know, start off with these grand plans of, of a new business and don't watch the bottom line closely enough because we all tend to get excited at times and drawn away by what we're trying to achieve and we forget the bottom line, which is we're actually trying to be making a living out of this as well. So that would be my main point. Always have a good cash flow and continually go back and readjust it and reflect and you know set your goals for the next month or the next three months and have, have a, a stop point when you say to yourself, okay, this isn't working and whilst I'd love to be, you know, to keep doing it, if it isn't working three, three, six months down the track, um, I don't want to eat into my cash reserves to keep it going unless I know that there's going to be, you know, that bright light at the end of the road. So I think that's really important. Oh, absolutely. And I hear that as well. Quite often you hear it's all about finances. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because it's a very left brain thing that women tend to shun away from finance and actually don't do the numbers or, uh, um, uh, a diligent with that side of uh, the business, I guess. They outsource it or don't do it at all. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is everyone 
says, oh, we, you know, outsource, get a bookkeeper in, etc. My other piece of advice is that, you know, if you're in a startup situation, try and do it yourself. It'll give you a much better handle on, you know, at least for the first, you know, little while um, until things take off and you're soaring great heights. But, you know, go through, do your own bookkeeping, pay your own accounts, keep an eye on what, what your outgoings are. Look at where you're making your money, where you are. Look at how many hours you're expending on one portion to make so much amount of money versus where you're not making a lot at all and you might be spending hours on it. You know, how how much from each of those areas need to be combined to give you the whole picture. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, and I, I'm, I would be the first person to say that I really don't like doing figures, but I've been running doing the books for two businesses, myself and the property, for eight years and it's only at the oh, end of last year they actually got a bookkeeper in. Mm-hmm. And even now I'm like, mm, I think I'll just double check and see, what's, see what she's done. So I do like to keep a firm handle on that. I remember my mentor said that to me once. He said, you don't need to be an expert in everything, but at least a generalist. Learn it yourself so that when you do get somebody to come in and actually do the work for you, uh, you can actually talk about it and you know what's, uh, you know what's getting done or not getting done. That's exactly right. And I think the thing is, is to, you know, to now that I'm busy and I have someone else who's doing that bookkeeping side of things, or busier, I should say, um, and I think, hmm, I wonder what category she put that in. And she's always spot on, of course, but it's just, it's, and it's keeping your finger on the pie as well. I mean, once you get to a stage of, you know, if you're going to grow your business, so you have no time for that, that's, that's a little bit different, I guess. But even so, I mean, the biggest business in the world, you still should be checking the bottom line and see where the money's coming in and where it's going out. Mm, so true, so true. So, Nicole, who has been um, your, I guess, who or who has given you the best advice? Um, I guess my father gave me the best advice. Yeah. Uh, he basically was, you know, he's, I have uh, two brothers and a sister, so very supportive of anything that we chose to do. Um, he was a very capable person who led by example. So I guess he gave all of us a lot of strength and resilience and determination. And I guess, you know, from, you know, having the time being in business with him to hear or him share some of the stories from our family's past and also in general Australia's greater pastoral history, um, um, you know, that was quite a privilege for me as well. So I've been able to incorporate some of those things into my own writing. So now that he's passed away, that's sort of a, a little bit of his legacy, I guess, in my work. So it would be my dad. Mm. And, and Nicole, if we went back in time, what would be that one thing you would tell your younger self? Oh, be kind to yourself. Well, yeah, I, you know, from an early time when I finished university, I was like, Nicole, you've got to try harder, do better, do this, do that, you know. Um, you can do this, you can do that. And, you know, it's not because I was doing any better or any worse than the next person beside me. It was just I was trying to be a bit of an overachiever, I guess. Um, and I was impatient. I think the bottom line is I was too impatient. So I think that it took me a while to realise that you can you can be under a deadline for anything, but it still takes time to create results, to create anything worthwhile. Um, and you have to be prepared for that, I guess. 
It's so true. And I think that just comes with age, darling. As you get older, it's more so slow down, be kind to yourself. I think, you know, when you actually look back in your timeline and seeing, I guess, the unnecessary stress that we sometimes put ourselves through, it's um, it's everything just happens in the right time. That's right, isn't it? It's a big learning curve, isn't mm. it? Absolutely. So what we love to do as we wrap up the show, the, the show, Nicole, is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. So what would be that one word? It would be strength, I guess, because mm. I think women in business need a lot of strength to move move onwards and, and upwards, so to speak. We always seem to be juggling a lot of different things um, at the same time. So you do need that determination to be able to move forward. And what advice would you give uh, women that, um, for our listeners, if they're there and say, well, I'm, I don't feel like I'm a strong woman, I don't feel like I have a voice, uh, especially in a corporate environment, where would one find their strength from? Well, I think you can find it through, as for, it's probably, it's different for everybody. Everyone's an individual. So, for some, for someone, it might be like making the time to just have 20 minutes to themselves every day. So whether that's go for a walk, learn how to meditate, shut yourself in a closed room and, and you know, read a book or whatever. So get yourself into the pattern of having time for yourself first. I think it's very hard to be um, strong in any situation if you're not nurturing number one. So... Do that first and get into the habit of, of having time for yourself. And after that, you, I think most people find that they become stronger by the very act of simply saying, this is my time and I'm going to do this. So that's you're actually crazy. telling, yeah, you know, you're telling yourself, this is my time. So that's strength in you to start off with. And it's a really basic thing. And I think strength comes with um, perseverance as well and dedication and it may not happen for years and it certainly won't happen overnight my journey itself um i'm 51 now so i can't say that i actually probably became strong until i was 40 and a lot of women do it a lot faster than that but that's my perception remembering that i was working you know being in agriculture i was working in a male-dominated industry as well so i found that quite challenging too so it took me a while to find my place and to be able to, to move forwards. But strength is very much a, an inner thing and you have to have that within yourself before it can be reflected um, outwards into your environment. And I love the fact that you're investing time on you and taking that time out for you because that's the only way to really build that muscle, isn't it, to sort of have that time to reflect and think and feel rather than just uh, get on that treadmill and uh, go a 1,000 miles an hour. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure, you know, I was the same. You just think, oh, I don't have time to have 20 minutes off. I don't have time to do this. I barely have time to, you know, go for, you know, go and do exercise once a week. But once you realise how important that is and that you've given yourself permission to have that free time, um, I think it makes a huge difference. For me, it does anyway. Oh, I agree. Absolutely agree. So the other thing that we love to ask our woman of inspiration as we wrap up is for our woman of inspiration to share three shiny golden nuggets for our listeners. So what would be those three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today? Okay, three golden nuggets. Well, the first one would be um, perseverance. 
So, you know, nothing is accomplished without, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of, a lot of sweat and tears, I guess. So perseverance is number one. It's not going to happen overnight, but if you persevere, it's, you've got a far greater chance of accomplishing your goal. Number two is to listen, to always seek advice because, um, you know, there's always going to be someone better than you at what you do, whether it be, you know, in your industry or whatever. For me as a writer, there's obviously a whole swag of great writers above me. So I think we have to be prepared to to learn and to take advice. So listening would be number two. And the third one is to love yourself, you know. Um, I think we're very hard, women are very hard on themselves a lot of the time. We should be doing more. We should be accomplishing more. We should be spending more time with this person, but then I have to get this done. So be kind to yourself, uh, you know, love yourself. It's very important to, to nurture yourself. And, you know, remember when you're being kind to yourself to treat people the way you would like to be treated. So that then goes on towards your family and your friends and your community. Mm, I love those. I love perseverance. I think perseverance is one of those things that we give up too quickly. It's like it's not working, and you know, people just allow the obstacles to get in the way rather than look at these obstacles as a way to move forward. Yes, that's exactly right. I think it does make a huge difference. And you know, it's hard, but the but the best things are hard. But you you know, you really have to sort of say to yourself, "I'm going to knuckle down, and I'm going to do this." And it might take me a month, or it might take me eight years. It took me eight years to, to write my first novel because I was working full-time and I did a master's as well. So that's why it's perseverance for me mm-hmm. is number one. <laughs> I love it. So, um, Nicole, for our listeners, where's the best place to find you? Okay, so my website is nicolealexander.com.au. Great. Thank you so very much for your time, your energy, and uh, I'm glad you made it on the show today after what happened to you yesterday. So thank you once again. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed the show as it is my mission to reach out and inspire as many individuals like you. And one of the best ways to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes. It's easy and it only takes about 10 seconds. If you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at Catherine Plano. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next week, please take care.